G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. We're wading our way today into a fascinating conversation about the political, the social and the economic forces that moulded Australia's development. Our special guest has produced a revealing new book all about Australia's history. This new Australian history book uses original documents, government letters, articles and legislation to reveal some compelling propositions. Just some propositions like this, that Australia was not settled as a penal colony, or that Aborigines, along with everyone else, voted for federation, and that Australia was so prosperous that it was Britain's greatest financial accident. The historian is Dr. Christopher Reynolds. His new book is called What a Capital Idea, Australia, 1770 to 1901. As a historian, Christopher was first listed in the International Who's Who Historical Society in 2006. He's published in politics, business and education. He's been a school teacher, a university professor, business manager and political strategist. He was even awarded a commendation from former US President Ronald Reagan having held White House appointments and worked for several U.S. political campaigns. In Australia, Christopher Reynolds has held positions including the Executive Officer for the New South Wales Minister for Public Works and was Executive Director for the World Trade Centre in Sydney. Christopher Reynolds, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Christopher, let's start with your book title and when you see on the cover of your book, what a capital idea, and you're talking about Australian history up to Federation, where does this what a capital idea come from? Well, I got into the meeting that was actually taking place in Prime Minister William Pitt's lounge room when they decided to discuss going to Australia, the whole Australia venture. England had never done this sort of thing before. When they started colonies, it was a private venture. So they'd give you a charter, you'd go off to Virginia, and we will tax the goods that you bring into England. So to actually come to Australia was a whole new idea that was going to cost a lot of money. But anyway, there were, there were conditions as to what brought these men together. But I got into the conversation, who was sitting there, what they were discussing. And this was in a period of a, ter- a terrific religious fervor. John Wesley was influencing the society. There were millions of people across America and England were being converted. But it was also on a time of the Enlightenment, new ideas, fresh breaking away from conservative ideas. And they sat there, and as I, I lis- as, I, as I listened to the conversation, you can understand me sitting there and reading it like I was in the room, and they had utopian ideas. Well, what brings on theft? Well, it's because people have got money or they need property. Well, what if we give them property when they get to Australia? And we take away money so they won't need to steal anything. And they had these incredible utopian ideas that I couldn't help but at the end of the section put Australia's first hippie commune. I mean, it was this, but it was this capital idea. Oh, what a capital idea. We'll all go off to Australia. We're going to star something. Oh, wonderful. And who could we 
get to actually head it all up, you know. And so it had nothing to do with sort of making money in the first instance. It had a lot to do with with religious and liberal, as it were, in the small sense of, of new ideas of what you could do that was so different. So Australia was the first place in the world to ban slavery. And as I went through the list, these are the, oh, no, I can't have slavery, you know, Wesley and, and, um, and Wilberforce are against it. We can't have that, you know. And so they went through. And so it, it just struck me, what a capital idea. And the proof of that, uh, that you do mention in your book, is mm. that while there was to be no slavery in Australia at the time when the first fleet arrived, this was 40 years before the official ban on slavery came into effect in England. So in when you say yeah. we're first, this is actually historic fact. This is historic fact, that they discussed the issue of slavery because, I mean, um, when you hear about the slave traders taking slaves to America, they weren't catching the slaves. They were only pulling their ships up at the dock and buying the slaves. And I thought, well, who's, who's selling these slaves? Oh, oh, no. It's Africans, one tribe against another. The Arabs have been practicing it ever since and still have a form of slavery in the Middle East. But it was, it was the people that could make money out of, out of um, selling human flesh and life. And even there were some tribes that say, right, we're selling you five blokes as slaves because we need the money from the slave trade. So, you know, it's a complicated thing. So it was, it, was, it was part of what we would call, like we're still doing it in a sense, we still have this capital idea that we need places like China where the labor's cheap. So this cheap labor idea has been going on for hundreds of years. And so um, when, Austra- when they said, well, there'll be no slavery, it was really radical stuff. Um, to have a colony without slaves. When we're talking about what was happening in that century before the First Fleet arrived, uh, the likes of a John Wesley that mm-hmm. you mentioned, uh, we understand the Great Awakening that was happening in England. Mm. It also yep. happened in America because yep. the Wesleys travelled to America yep. too. The world was in crisis, or at least England and America were in crisis. Uh, people actually credit John Wesley with being... Uh, the one who actually brought uh, England and America out of the crisis, mm. gripped by uh, the plague of alcoholism that came mm. with gin. Mm. And so you had nations on their knees, and the message that Wesley brought, which brought England and America out of their crisis times, this was the sort of thing that was shaping the likes of a William Wilberforce and a William Pitt as they sat around the table. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, what happens when you, when you pick up most historical books? It's all to do with fact, and a lot of it is what you, you and I call eisegesis, which is to read back into the passage, which, you know, you can't do legitimately as a person with a theological degree. You can't just go reading what you want. You have to accept it. So as not just a historian, but as an intellectual, I've been trained to sort of say, well, what, is, what was going on? What's the context? What does this word mean, etc.? What was happening in the world? So with, with, with the Wesley story, you can read what a phenomenal story it is and the, the thousands of people that came to see him. But what people re- don't realize that he went up to this prison called Newgate Prison in Bristol, and it was awful. It was absolutely, he said, it was um, a, a shameful the way people were being treated. So he started to take blankets and food into the prison. Well, they, they decided they didn't like him in the prison and they banned him from the Newgate prison. So he kept bringing himself. So he went around, he visited uh, 59 prisons in 90 days. Now, he would have been on horse, 59 prisons. 
So he started the movement to reform the prison system of England. And I've got no idea. And, that, and he wrote his first paper on slavery in 54. 1754, he began his, his, um, his move against slavery. So what ha- why is this significant? Because this, 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 um, uh, this revi- not revival, but re- renovation of all the prisons, of the prison um, system and food coming in, etc. Oh, in Newgate Prison, the top fellow by the name of Bragg, who was the superintendent, finds faith, becomes a Methodist in the midst of all of this himself. It's just an incredible story to get into it. Why is this important? It's because... Um, they were putting the people who'd been sentenced to transportation on the hulks, and we get about the hulks, not as bad as what you think. They got clothes, they got food, but they had to be assigned to work. They could not be incarcerated in the prisons because they'd been sentenced to work like community service today. But it was in the context of Wesley's influence upon the prison system that was also influencing those men sitting in that room as they made the decision to come to Australia. So prison reform was the foundation that actually led to the sending of that first fleet where those convicts arrived on our shores. Uh, They weren't to be incarcerated. They were to work the ground. Uh, They were to work initially for the governor and then working to build a colony in Australia. Yeah. And, uh, And, of course, from poor beginnings... Uh, of course, it nearly all fell over as well. But uh, from poor beginnings, we've got the formation of a mm. nation, uh, in talking uh, colon- uh, colon- uh, the colony, uh, the formation of the colony, which actually has these same principles that we're carrying over from the Great Awakening. You've got three questions there, Neil. You don't realise this or not. <laughs> Let me identify the three questions, okay. right? One was what was happening with the Transportation Act. Second question was... Why do they really get up and come to Australia, which is a totally different issue? And the third question was, when Philip got to Australia, the Marines were not going to oversee the convicts. They were here to defend the, uh, the new nation against the French. We're not getting involved with those blasted convicts over there. So Philip had to come up with a whole new idea, and he, he assigned convicts to oversee convicts. And, I mean, when, when he left England, they said, well, good luck with that. We'll see how that works out for you. But that's what he did. And you, so you find the first police officer was a convict, the guy in charge of the, the brickworks was a convict, and so it went on. If he could find anyone that had any, any strength of character, they were soon in charge of other people. So, yeah. Yeah, so they, they, it, what, they were not to be locked up. And in the king's letters patent to Philip, go on to the other side of the world, set this up. When you read through the list of what was to happen, you got to set up forts and cities and this, etc. No prisons. No prisons because the, the transportees were not to be locked up. So they had barracks. You can still visit this, the barracks in Sydney next to the Parliament House in Sydney. And they were, they were, they were accommodated as well as the, as the Marines. Which has baffled people for years. Life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision Christian Radio. Our talkback line is open 1 800 316 316 if you'd like to join in to a conversation like this today. And it's a different sort of a conversation about Australian history. Our special guest is Dr Christopher Reynolds. His new book is called What a Capital Idea, Australia, 1770 to 1901. So in those years, which I guess uh, come from Captain Cook there, 1770 uh, to 1901, Federation, 
Coming back to some of the things we were talking about, and just to clarify, when you say that Australia was not settled as a penal colony, that goes against a lot of the things we were all taught in school when we were taught Australian history. But getting that little closer view, honing in on some of those issues, actually brings about some really significant things. And you get that because of your a way that you've been able to examine the way that convicts were transported here. Give us your thoughts here. Okay. This is one of the most exciting things I discovered in the five years of research. I ended up getting back to what was called the Elizabethan Act of 1695. 1695, they wrote this first version of the Transportation Act to do with what to do with felons. And it all really had to do with getting them out of the country. Now, why? Because England was, was experiencing the Industrial Revolution. People were leaving the farms and coming to the city. Terrific opportunities if you could get work. But there were so many people that couldn't get work. And so theft became endemic. People were stealing just to survive. So they didn't sort of say off with their heads and off with their hands. Remember, there was no police at this stage running around. It was up to the public to arrest people if they could find the thieves. So what they actually did, and someone pointed me to this, is they decided that they needed to get them out of the country and give them a new life. And that's what transportation was about. But it's based on Ephesians 4.18. And it says, if he is a thief, let him be given work that he might then look after other people or be transformed from his ways. And again, remember there's a Christian influence on what's going on. If he is a thief, give him work. Get him out of the country, seven years, 14 years, and get him out of the underclass in which he's been living. Now, they, they modified that act in 1717, and they modified it again in, in the early um, 1770s, uh, and the, yeah, 70, under Lord Sidney. So he knew the act because he had actually brought it to the floor. Now, this act, I'm going to go on a minute if you put up with me for a second. Yep. This act becomes important because as you read it, there are two clauses in this thing that I read, three interesting things. You could volunteer as a youth to be transported. What? What? This isn't, it weren't penalty. It wasn't a penalty. It was, it was seen as something as a privilege to be able to, to go somewhere else and get a new life. Secondly, there were two interesting clauses. One was the benefit of clergy. The benefit of clergy? What on earth was this? I looked at myself. So the benefit of clergy was if a clergyman committed some crime and he came before the, the courts, he could plead benefit of clergy, benefit of clergy, and be sent to a, a um, ecclesiastical court to be tried. So this then became a phrase in law that meant first, uh, first offence. Uh, benefit of clergy, right, first offence. Of something like Monty Python, I suppose it sounds like, first offence, um, you know, on the left. Um, and so people would claim this for if it was a misdemeanor crime, as we call today. The second thing is this thing about um, being being the property of. And oh, what's this property of? So you couldn't receive a transportee to work on your farm or your business unless you had been registered as a suitable person to receive them. So even when the convicts came to Australia, and, and when they did, get assigned to people on farms, that person um, that looked after them, five and a half day work week, they had to get bed, clothing, they could have a garden, they could have their wife, and they could have a civil life and attend church on Sundays in the new, in this society. If the convict didn't like the way he's being treated, he could complain back to the governor who then sought out the person who was supposed to look after him. Now, that's a totally different view to the convicts coming out and they were so ill-treated. In fact, the first law case 
in Australia, in Australia's history, was where Governor Philip let this couple who'd come out from England, of course, um, and their goods had been stolen by a ship's captain. And they complained that they'd lost all their goods. So Philip said to the, the new Attorney General, let him, let him sue. So our first case was a convict who sued the sea, the sea captain and won. He was a convict. You can't take anyone to court today if you're a convict, but you could then because they weren't, as we would describe, convicts. They were transportees. They were transportees. You even tell the story in your book of... Australia's richest man, Samuel Terry, who was sentenced for stealing socks. Uh, this sort of goes along with what you're talking about yeah. here, but, um, you know, he died a very rich man. Yes, yeah, Samuel Terry, a uh, young fellow, a teenager, and he, he stole 400 pairs of socks. And when he came before the judge, you could just imagine, you stole 400 pairs of socks. I mean, how many feet have you got? And how many in your family? I mean, what are you going to do with 400 pairs of socks? So he said, you know, you need to be reformed. You know, transportation <laughs> on the left, and out he went. So when he arrived, he was assigned to work on the Parramatta Church as a stonemason, the Anglican church that's still there. So he learned stonemasonry, and then he decided he was going to do the business himself as he got up to 20 years old. And then he started to um, lend money, a pawnbroker business, and that earned him a bit more. And um, so this loans thing started to earn him some money, and eventually he married a lady who had a bit of money, and I think there were some pubs, and they eventually put him on the boards of the Bank of New South Wales as this fella, because, <laughs> you see, you know, that was past. He'd been set free. But, yes, he died with $24 billion in wealth. He was Australia's richest man, and he went out as a teenager for stealing 400 pairs of socks. Let's talk about Aboriginal Australia because obviously there's lots of contention now. Uh, first Australians, pre-colonial history. Uh, you've got the arrival of the first fleet. You've got relationships that then begin to grow between not only Governor Philip, uh, but you've got the first chaplain, Richard Johnson too, uh, who appear from uh, from the evangelical Christian history books to mm. have had good relationships with Aboriginal people. Uh, in some ways, that's not being painted in that way. What are your thoughts on those early relationships with Aboriginal people? Neil, we only have an hour. <laughs> just to it's summarize this in just, just, just two okay. or three minutes. <laughs> all right, yeah, yeah, three minutes. All right, two sides of this. One is again the Compton Street Anglican, low, what we call low Anglican these days, um, were influential in that group of those men sitting in that room that made the decision to come here. And yes, they actually decided that Compton Street group actually nominated the first. Anglican ministers to come to Australia. So there was, as you've pointed out, this evangelical side of the, you know, we're going to do something new with these convicts. Very difficult job, particularly with the Irish that really didn't want anything. But let's get back to what actually happened. The, the, the rumor, not the rumor, the stories of all the explorers that come to Australia said they're violent, they're cannibals, you know, they're the most primitive people that have ever lived. And that's just historic of, 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 of sea captain after sea captain. So it was interesting when Cook came, when he first came to Botany Bay, he was greeted again with, with some violence. But when he went up to up near, town, uh, what's it called, Cooktown, um, they became friends. He was there, he had to fix his boat. So this was very, his ship, you should say, you know. When Philip arrived... He had a totally different reaction, and I had to stop and say why. Philip was of actually German descent. He spoke German, French, Portuguese, and English, but he was short, and his skin was, was 
Olive, I don't know, I'm only guessing as to why he had success and others didn't. But when you read his diary, when his ship pulls up into Botany Bay, as far as he's concerned, he can't wait for them to drop anchor. He's in a boat, he's on the shore, and and he, he makes friends within an hour. With the Aborigines, you know, and here he is, and you really like he's walking up and down the beach in Botany Bay with the Aborigines, and they're going, "Oh, it'd be a bit marshy over here, mate. I don't think you're going to get your boat in over there, you know." Oh no, I don't. That's any good. And he walked around the bay with the Aborigines. They said, "Oh, go and have a look at Port Jackson." Oh, all right. So when the other ships pulled in the next couple of days, he said, "I'm going to have a look a bit further north." Now, when he got into Port Jackson, of course, he he declared it to be the best harbour that he'd ever seen in the world well he pulled into Sydney Cove and again when you open up the front of my book you'll see that I had to put this dedication page in it and it plays on what happened it's all truthful but it's sort of the Australian uh, thing on it the average has come out of the trees down to the down to the, the ship to meet him and Philip gets out and he says g'day fellas you've been here long and they say this one he'd been a long time here well we'll have to call him Ben along and they say well we'll call you Walla Worry. And then uh, Ben Along says, um, oh, we'll call you Wally for short because Walla Worry is a bit hard to say. Then you could be Australia's first Wally, right? <laughs> and by the way, says Philip, any of you fellas good at cricket? So I set the tone that it's not this violence, there wasn't any invasion. When he got on the beach, um, he, again, it took him less than an hour and the Aborigines were befriending him and they sat and had dinner with him for the next two days. There wasn't any invasion. They could have knocked over these 700 Marines with spears and whatever if they wanted to, but there was clothing, food, shelter, education, work, what on earth are you going to do? Shoot yourself in the foot, you know? I mean, they weren't the, the Marines weren't coming to hurt the Aborigine, but right in the letters pattern, the king said, take care of them. And that was what the Australian um, leadership actually did, was care for the Aborigines. And Walla Worry, the name the Aboriginals gave to Arthur Phillip, mm. uh, a term of endearment, uh, a, an embrace as part of the family. Well, been along uh, as you... Your listeners probably know. I mean, Ben Long became an exceptionally close friend to Arthur Phillip. And where the Opera House sits today is Ben Along Point. And Arthur had a house built for him. He and his two wives, who did fight among themselves when you get into the story, that um, the first wife died but left him a baby. So he went over to see Philip and he said, I want you to become the baby's father. Uh, and can you care for, it, for the baby? Because I can't. Um, but at that point, Ben Along did a ceremony made him the child's father or grandfather, and from that point on, Benelong called Philip father, not sir or governor, but father, because he did do some ceremony, and if they smoked anything or the smoke went into the air, whatever else, but he was, by adoption, a member of an Aboriginal tribe and had responsibility for those Aborigines. And eventually he took, him back, he took Benelong back to England. Christopher, I think it might be worth our while to take a call. Janice is on the line from Somerset in Tasmania. Janice, welcome along. Thank you. Janice, what are your thoughts for our conversation? Well, um, I'm I'm standing taller, I I tell you, because I I am descended from three first fleeters who were sent to Norfolk Island um, in Mm. the first five weeks or so of of landing in Sydney and uh, and then were... um, and then went to Hobart, and I was born in Hobart, and I, I still live in Tasmania, um, and uh, and I, I trace a lot of my godly heritage back to those three first fleeters. 
Wonderful stuff. And talking Tasmania, I know you love to talk about Tasmania too, Christopher. What are your thoughts for Janice? Well, Tasmania, what a history. Uh, it's fantastic. And I, when I put the book together, I felt like there was the main story and there were all these places and things that had fallen off the page, such as Tasmania. What went on in Tasmania? What was really going on in Western Australia? Queensland. And how did New Guinea get into this act? So I went back and had a look at lots of little towns and some terrifically interesting people. There's the great story. I don't know if you know the story about the Frederick in Tasmania. Do you know the story about the Frederick? Janice, do you know? I don't. No, no. Oh well, on the west coast, <laughs> and of course, the big thing that happened with Tasmania. Part, how did how did Tasmania start? A good one. Let me do that one for you. Well, um, there was a there was a French ship that Napoleon had sent out to spy on Australia to see where he could take it over because he was supposed to be as a youth on on the ship with um, La Perouse, but they decided he was too young. But he never gave up his interest, so he sent this ship over to Australia to have a look. And the book, his the, the notes that went back off the book. We're obviously in France, and it's only within the last 10 years they've been translated into English, and there's a fellow from South Australia involved. So I got hold of the book, and I read about the French trying to take over Australia. Anyway, the, the, the fellows on the boat, they got scurvy, and they had to pull into Sydney, and um, they were talking too much in the pub, you know, as one does, you know, what do you think? And in the notes, it actually said, we think we can have a revolution in Australia and take the place over, and the Irish and the Aborigines are going to help us. And I put in brackets, I don't, I'd, I'd like to see that work out. You know? <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I'd like to see that happen. But what happened was that word got put back from the pub to the governor. So the moment the ship left, he said to um, David Collins, I think at the time, if I got the name right, get, get down, or King, get down to Tasmania, take, take some of the transportees with you, take, um, take um, half a dozen soldiers and go down there and stick a flag in somewhere and just claim Tasmania be- before that lot of French get down there. So that's how it, it actually went. But um, they did actually set up a, a, a bigger colony that came into under David Collins in what is now called Hobart. But when they sent us, the, the, here's the story about the Frederick, they were fixing up, and of course, oh, I have to jump ahead, the, the Tasmanian uh, company, agricultural company, was huge in developing um, a lot of the Tasmanian you know, development that's there now. So it sort of was, was the economic side. But with the Frederick, they were, they were actually building a boat on the west coast somewhere. And um, they decided they'd had enough. The boat was nearly finished. And all the convicts should go back um, to wherever they'd came from. But they left one guard and a handful of convicts. Well, it turned out that one of these convicts actually knew how to sail a ship. So, you know, they all had a bit of a think and a plot. Bang the fellow on the head and stole the ship. And it was the Frederick. Anyway, he had a girlfriend, I think it was a girlfriend, in, in, um, in South America. So they sailed the boat to South America, sunk it off the coast, and then pretended that they'd all been shipwrecked. Well, the governor was a bit, bit suspicious, but they managed to live there for a few years. Anyway, they eventually got onto them, and these fellows were dragged back to Tasmania to stand trial. Now, the big issue was, since the boat had not been commissioned, and it wasn't on the high seas, was it mutiny or theft of, 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 the, of you know, a ship on the high seas where they could be hung, or had they just stolen property? So it becomes a fundamental case in law. I can't remember the result. <laughs> but it becomes this fundamental case in history of this story of these, these convicts stealing the ship and off to South America they went. They've actually done a stage play out of it. And it's a, it's a story. You can look it up, the Frederick, and it'll come up to you with the, with the, the whole story. And Janice, while I've got you on the line, uh, you may well have your ancestry going back to uh, those convicts. Any thoughts from you, Janice? 
Well, well, I've, um, I have just discovered that for, 40 years ago, as from last year, um, a lot of lot of that first fleet and one second fleet are history because they intermarried. Um, uh, um, has has been been done, and I'm a latecomer to to finding out. Um, but I'm finding out through some of the descendants, my fellow descendants, and and it's a blessing when you can meet people and connect back to your past, and not not only read it all in books. And just about the, the ship that never was, I realised yeah. I didn't know it was. I didn't remember it was called the Frederick. Oh but, yes, that's uh, my it. My husband and yeah. I have been destroyed, and we have seen the play, the ship that never was. Yeah, and, anyway, and yes, yeah, so so yeah. it's amazing. Wonderful stuff, Janice. Uh, anything further to add there, Christopher? Oh, only the, the, the other great thing that comes out of Tasmania was a- Andrew Inglis Clark. And this man was the brains behind the Constitution. He actually designed, he wrote 98 of the clauses of the 128. He gave Australia the flag and he gave Australia the name, the Commonwealth of Australia. And he was the Attorney General out of Tasmania. So that, that is really something. And people have forgotten him. And he was the guy. I mean, forget, forget your, uh, uh, Henry, Henry, um, Henry Parks, pa- uh, Parks, etc. He was dead for five years before we even got there. So I don't know how he gets a mention in the whole process. But Andrew Clark was the man behind the Australian Constitution. He was Tasmanian. Wonderful stuff. And I know that uh, Hobart listeners will be very impressed to hear that. Janice, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in our conversation, hey, take you back to uh, one really interesting little point. You mentioned Napoleon. You mentioned the French. Mm. Uh, In your book, you actually suggest that Napoleon was interested in investing Invading Australia. Uh, thoughts around that, around about 1800? Yes, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's the second most interesting thing I discovered. And I got forced into it by someone who had actually written a book and said it was a race between um, La Perouse and Philip to get to Australia. And I thought, what nonsense is that? <clears throat> La Perouse left two years earlier. Uh, and Napoleon was there watching him take off. And it was in the newspapers. There was no spying going on. It was in the French newspapers. Everybody knew that La Perouse left. No convict soldiers. He was just going off to, as Cook did. And he was supposed to, to, to travel around and redo Cook's venture to have a look at where the French could set up. Anyway, it wasn't a race. So I went and chased the money. Where was the money and why on earth were they going to Australia? So here it comes. There's a fellow that I kept coming across called Harris, uh, first name James, and he was the ambassador, British ambassador to The Hague. And here he is writing letters back to Pitt, and he's complaining more than he was just energetic about the fact that the French were building up their navy. You've got to do something. You've got to do something. And it was Harris's letter that eventually got Lord Sidney with Pitt to talk to the king. And the king, being German's descent with very little English, said, hmm, I think the French are talking out of both sides of their mouth. Because they want to talk commerce with us, but they want to go to Southeast Asia, you know, and cause us much trouble. So I went looking for the money. What happened was the French and the English, after the Seven Years' War and their War of Independence, etc., they were both in massive debt. 
Uh, France were $255 billion in debt, and England wasn't much better at about $250 billion, right? So they tried to work out some commercial relationship, etc. But the French talked to the Dutch. Remember, the Dutch East India Company was extremely rich, 400 trading vessels. Think about that, going around Africa. So they talked to the, the Dutch, and they set up an alliance. So stick with me for here. This is incredibly important. An alliance, and that allowed Dutch money to come into France. And we're all good mates here with the Dutch. And everybody's fighting each other constantly in Europe. You just jump from one war to the next. So anyway, the Dutch money starts to flow into France. And Louis is using that money to build up his navy. Now, James Harris gets really, really upset about this. So this meeting I'm going to tell you about must have happened, but it's not actually recorded on the date and where. But I've actually figured out when it could have taken place. And so I wrote it up as a post and put it on my system called The Secret Meeting That Started Australia. So three, three men, three men, Pitt, um, Harris and Lord Sydney meet in the back of this private club called Brooks, which is where they would have gone. And Harris says to them, what if our enemy's friend, enemy, became our friend? And Sydney says, what on earth are you talking about? You know, what are you doing playing chess? He said, let me put some names to this. What if France's friend, uh, Holland, was invaded by Germany and that would stop the money flow? And what Germany wants from us is a nod and a wink that says if we invade Holland, England won't come to their rescue. So the wink was given. They all stood and said, by George, the king, by George, let's do it. And so Harris went off and his diary is filled with all this stuff about the Prussians going on about the Dutch. And I couldn't make any sense of it until I worked out that the money stopped. Why is this significant? Because before Philip even arrived in Australia, the problem that initiated Philip coming to Australia had been solved. So he's on the ship and he's off to Australia. Meanwhile, the problem had been solved. Oh, I won't go any further on that one. And so what happened was the, the uh, Germans invaded Holland. France couldn't come to their aid because they were in such debt themselves. And again, like and different political uh, areas weren't going to go. So what happened is that France put up their taxes, which brought on the French Revolution. And within one year, Philip landing on the beach in Australia, French Revolution had started, and two years later, Louis lost his head. And I have absolute confidence that it came out of that meeting. So our real reason for why they came to Australia all has to do with the money. Wow. Well, 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let's take another call. Mike, also in Tasmania. Hello, Mike. Welcome. Oh, yeah. Greetings from Van Diemen's Land. Um, (laughs) The other day... Recently, I heard Dr. Stuart Piggin speak. He wrote a book called The Foundation of Public Prosperity, Evangelical Christian History, 1740 to 1914. So he would be very contemporaneous with you, I imagine. Mm. He is, and uh, and you know what? I've discovered that Christopher doesn't know Stuart, and I'm going to put him in touch. Uh, but what were you going to say from that, Mike? Oh, just uh, I was reading the, the history of the, the... They've got a chapter about the the South Sea Island mission from Australia, and you know it's 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 got a bit about Tasmania about Tasmania in it, and and of course in Tasmania we have Bruny Island, which is named after the the, the, the French captain. We have Fraser Nay Peninsula, we have the Entrecasteaux Passage. Mm. So the the French were having a go, weren't they? Yes, 
That's right. That's really interesting to bring that out, isn't it? Because all those French names that you'll discover when you're having your little tour around Tasmania, that would indicate this is obviously all uh, partly influenced by French people arriving and they had their sights set on Tasmania. Yes, because, I mean, um, how people actually bumped into Australia, literally bumped in, was they got the winds coming off Africa and the the, the roaring 40s. And, of course, they're on their way north into Indonesia, what we call Indonesia today, um, for the the trade and and India. But they had to bump into the West Coast and and et cetera. However, how do you get to Tasmania except that you're sailing too far south and you go whack, bang, into into the coast and come around and have a look? So, yes, one has to stop and say, well, did they have <clears throat> an interest in Tasmania or Australia other than simply somewhere to sort of stop or get some water or something because they weren't on the, on the, the, the um, sea uh, path into, into, um, into Asia. But it, it remains a mystery to me because, yes, there were quite a number of, of French uh, that um, stopped in. Abel Tasman, for example, um, I believe. Oh, I've got to think. Abel Tasman and Van Diemen. I've got to quickly refresh my memory as to where these two fellows came from. Do you know anything about Spanish. that, Mike? Spanish. Six, six, Abel Tasman came past in 1642. Yeah, right. And, um, but um, d- down on Bruni Island, there's a place called Adventure Bay, and both Captain Cook and Captain Bly put their ships in there at different times. Yes, that's interesting. You know that when Philip had landed and the, and the first leader landed in Sydney, Bly had left <clears throat> London and he arrived in Tasmania and didn't bother to go north to visit visit his English fellows that were just, um, you know, so many thousand miles further north. And he, he was on a particular um, expedition into Southeast Asia, uh, the South Pacific, and he didn't even bother to go and visit, visit the English on the other side of the world. Wonderful stuff. Mike, thank you so much for your call. Hey, time is running short, and there's so many dimensions we could talk about. Uh, love to talk some more about Western Australia, but let's include Western Australia into something of a conversation about the fact that at the time of Federation, uh, you had all of these separate states. And uh, when you talk about the thoughts around republics and uh, the push that comes every now and then, uh, almost uh, at a lull in uh, what's happening in the news cycle, somebody comes out with uh, an idea about Australia's future republic uh, likelihood and a republican movement. Uh, we had a uh, we had a referendum about this uh, back in the late 1990s. I think it was the late 1990s, but. Uh, When we come to the thought about Australia's future, what we learned from our past, the sovereignty of the states, how does that fit? Because you can also just let us in here, and we've only got a few minutes to talk about this, but your own studies when it comes to Australia's constitution and the issues around being a republic or remaining a part of the monarchy. What are your thoughts here? Hey, great topic, Neil. We might have to have another day <laughs> yeah. where we actually expand this more. So it's really just a, a scratch the surface here yeah, you because are. I know this is a, an area of your expertise yeah. that you can touch on. <laughs> the colonies. By the time they got to the uh, the 1850s, William Wentworth had written the first constitution for New South Wales, right? So it passes the English Parliament, and then the other colonies basically uh, copy it, including Tasmania becomes the second state, and then Victoria becomes independent colonies with their own constitutions, and so it goes on to South Australia, etc. Um, but from that time on, those colonies started to complain back to England. 
And the first person to, to get upset about it was Lord Grey, you know, uh, Earl Grey T. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, he was, and he wrote something about those whinging, complaining colonies. Will they ever stop? And so he said, they've got to federate. Somehow they've got to get together. Can't we get them to do it? So from as early as the 1860s, England wanted to get rid of us because they couldn't stand all the, all the complaints. And our parliaments were a shamble. I mean, um, you couldn't be Premier in charge of the state. The average life was less than a year, six months, eight months. And they had something like uh, 19 changes in 20 years in Victoria and about the same in New South Wales. So it was this, this complaining mess among the colonies. So the first thing, we get up to the real change, not just with federation, and we need to understand that England wrote the constitution for us to become a federated country. It was another colonial act just the same as the other states. And so it stood beside the other constitutions of the states. And today, we are still a country of shared sovereignty. That is, we have a federal government that looks after some things and the state governments look after others. Take the pandemic. Queensland, I'm just going to close the border, she said. (laughs) I'm just going, I don't care. This is my state. And the best the Prime Minister could do was get the Premiers together to hold hands and we're going to have a Kumbaya session each week and you'll all agree and I'll be part of the meeting because I have no federal power to tell the states what to do. So when it comes to could we become a republic, the issue is, let me just say, that we all held hands and we all decided we're going to become a republic, right? That's great. So then what have you got? You've then got this hybrid system of one republic and another six um, under the uh, constitutional monarchies. Now, they wrote this thing. I've got to bring up to date very quickly. There's a number of documents that were written, um, uh, starting with the, the, um, the, Westminster, the Westminster, Statute of Westminster. And it basically said, England said about the time of the war, please go away. Please, will you do your own thing? We can't look after you anymore. And it was on the basis of that that we were able to declare war against the Japanese as our own country, right? So then after that... Uh, here's a good one. In, in 49, on January 26, 1949, we had another act passed in our country that allowed citizenship. And so we were no longer British subjects, but from January 26, 1949, we became Australian citizens. Or to put it another way, we joined the Aussie mob. This was our mob. What mob do you belong? I'm, a, I'm an Australian mob. This is us. This is, we are now citizens. Now, it was the same time they did another piece of legislation that brought in Aborigines at that point. But that's why we celebrate Australia Day. On January 26th, it's got nothing to do with Arthur Phillip. The last thing that you're referring to is the Australian Act of 86, I think it was, and I was, I was somewhat involved in, in the, the process. And that relinquished all links, Britain said, we hereby agree that we'll never get involved in any Australian bit of politics again. Here endeth the lesson, and then go, please go away. So we became fully independent. When people say, oh, we need to become a republic to be independent, what are you reading? Where are you? You know, get, get your head up to, up to speed. So today when they talk about republicanism, what are you going to do? It becomes an alternative political system. That's it. So as, as Nigel Farage says, well, it sounds great, but tell me, of the wonderful people you've got in Australia, who would you nominate to be president? Have you got someone of the, the ilk that can actually take the job? Because here's the thing. 
there's a there's a we would be a republic if it wasn't for one sentence in our constitution, and it says that those secretaries of state that work for the governor general should all be members of the parliament. The moment you cross that out, the governor general or the president could pick who he wanted or she wanted to work for him. And so you see, the prime minister is illegal in the constitution. There's no such position. And all those people that are ministers would lose their job. So why is it never going to happen in Australia for two things, money and power? What premier or prime minister is ever going to give up their power and the money they control to allow governors and a president to run the country? So if Australia was to ever become a republic, then every state would need to give up their own sovereignty and relinquish their power to one president. Well, they'd have a governor. I remember America has governors in each of the states too, but the premiers would have to just be part of the legislative system and have nothing to do with what we call running the government. That is the job of the executive officer. And so it's de facto where a legislator becomes the executive officer, meaning the premier. Why? Oh, no, we have governors. But they're only ciphers. They just meet every Thursday afternoon on a wine and sign whatever the prime minister says. How do I know? I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Christopher, I hope we'll have another opportunity on another day to unpack some of the rich history that you have. And there's a rich personal history too, which we haven't even got into as the opportunity to talk about those comes. We'll take that and uh, we'll look forward to another conversation on another day. But for listeners right now, I'll just uh, warn you, you might have to reinforce your bookshelf uh, to have a copy of Christopher's new book on your bookshelf. It is substantial, 500 pages. It's called What a Capital Idea, Australia, 1770 to 1901. And you'll be able to get it, simply Google it online. Uh, you'll find it available from booksellers everywhere. What were you going to say, Christopher? Yeah, it's uh, the first big printing of it. We had a sample run, which is what you've got, and the printing begins for the first run this week. So if you get on the, the net, you can order it. To get this printed, just printed in Australia, was $150, which means the book would be selling for about 300 I'm able to give it to give it to you. I can give it to you in uh, off the off a website for one oh nine dollars. But for the moment you handle it, you'll see value for money. I took it along to a coffee shop meeting after church. There were ten people there. Nine of the elderly ladies sat there, passed it around, and nine of them bought it instantly. And that's the effect the book has on people. It is a substantial book. It looks absolutely uh, outstanding. And so uh, do. Uh, if you're, if you're into books and you don't mind paying a few dollars for something that is of real substance and of real value, this is one of those ones you ought to get a hold of. It's called What a Capital Idea, Australia 1770 to 1901, to connect with our guest today, Christopher Reynolds, reynoldlearning.com, R-E-Y-N-O-L-D, reynoldlearning.com. Christopher, great Getting your insights. Thanks so much for joining us on 2020. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.